Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Things have really been picking up across the national park system as parks try to come out of closures instituted in a bid to slow the spread of coronavirus. In the past week, we've seen Rocky Mountain National Park reopen and announce plans to move to a reservation system for visitors, and Yellowstone National Park has announced it will open all five of its entrances beginning tomorrow, June 1st. There was other non-coronavirus news across the parks last week, too. At Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina, there was troublesome news that someone driving on the beach after hours ran over and killed a loggerhead sea turtle that was trying to lay her eggs in a nest on the beach. And some groups have asked the Arizona Attorney General to look into the possibility that saguaro cacti from Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument were being illegally sold by contractors working on the border wall there. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. This week's show opens with a conversation with Becky Lomax, author of Moon's USA National Parks, regarding the various news stories that arose from the park system this past month. And we bring you an interesting story about efforts to recover populations of endangered black-footed ferrets in the West. Two places where they're working on that are Wind Cave and Badlands National Parks in South Dakota. been quite the busy month around the national park system as more and more parks have started to reopen and increase access to the general public in the wake of what is hoped to be the wake of the coronavirus pandemic across the globe. We're joined today by guidebook writer Becky Lomax um, to discuss news across the park system in the past four weeks. Becky, thanks for joining us today. Um, It has been quite a strange month when you look at how the Park Service used to operate and how it's currently operating. And, and I don't know if this is going to be the new normal or or not, but it's certainly given us a, enough fodder to talk about. And why, why don't we just start right off the top with um, the way that the park system is reopening? Um, do you have any initial takeaway from that? I do. Um, and mostly as it relates to people that want to go visit the national parks, probably the number one question I've been getting so far is like, where can I find all this information? What's happening? You know, that kind of stuff. And I think of all the years <laughs> when you can just throw stuff in the car and go and, the you know, and count on the park being open and so forth. That's not the case. Man. So I think for travelers now going to national parks, they really need to do their research before they go. And part of the reason is because there is not a one-size-fits-all opening strategy for these parks. So every park is taking a different tact depending on, in a large part, depending on to the local needs of the area and their park staffing and so forth. So it's, it's imperative that you check on stuff before you go. And what may be operational this week in two more weeks could be changed. So, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, I think the research before you go is probably the biggest thing people need to do this year. 
Yeah. Yeah. And of course, at National Parks Traveler, we've been trying to keep an up-to-date listing of, of what parks are open and, and how much accessibility in each of those parks there is. But as you mentioned, things are changing quite drastically. Perhaps one of the most interesting um, of all park reopenings is at Rocky Mountain National Park, um, which opened this past Wednesday, May 27th, letting the people in and the, the rangers were going to kind of monitor them and see how many people they had and if there were any crowding issues. But um, this this coming um, week on June 4th, there's going to be a reservation system in place, so to speak, uh, to create this timed entry. So they'll only have X number of people in the park with hopes that they'll be able to disperse enough and, and not run into social distancing problems. What, what do you make out of that? I, th- <laughs> that is going to be a huge adjustment for park travelers. But you know, I think it's probably, at least for right now, it's one of the things that maybe needs to happen. And I believe, isn't Yosemite doing the same thing too? Yeah, I've heard that they're looking at a reservation system. I haven't seen any details yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's um, too dissimilar from what Rocky Mountain is doing. Yeah. And I I think what it just means for travelers is that, oh my, you have to plan ahead. <laughs> you can't just throw and go in the car anymore. And, you know, it. the intent is to alleviate the crowding and allow for social distancing. And with some of those parks, you know, that have had such extreme crowds in the last couple years, this could actually be a good, you know, equalizer to finally kind of pull back on some of that. No, for sure. And and to, to take the devil's advocate position, and maybe it's not the devil's advocate because I've kind of been in support of a, a reservation system at parks that need it. I mean, you look at Zion National Park, they've been trying for three or four or five years to come up with a management plan for Zion Canyon because it gets so crowded. And I don't know what the delay is in holding that up. I, I'm imagining it might have something to do with economics and politics. You go across to eastern Utah, you've got the same thing at uh, Arches National Park, which um, the the former superintendent thought that she had a plan with a sort of timed entry reservation system. And I wonder if by having Rocky Mountain do this at least for the next couple months, if not the entire summer, and Yosemite jumping into it, maybe this could become the new norm as, as park managers realize that, hey, this is a better way to control visitation protect the natural resources and match the park staff resources so you're not burdening the the staff more than need be. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely correct on that. And you know when you when you talk about the burden of the big crowds on the parks, I mean it's it's not just crowds in cars on the road, you know, it's, it's extra damage on the trails and trails Mm -hmm. widening Mm -hmm. and Alpine meadows getting trampled and, you know, huge lines for shuttles. And that's not how you want to spend your summers standing in a shuttle line (laughs) in the national park. Uh, So, you know, getting a more functional number working throughout the park might be the way to go. And I think this is an opportunity for us to to see how it works, you know, and can we adapt to it? 
You know, I, I had a, a discussion with uh, Cam Shawley, Yellowstone National Park superintendent, about this very issue, and and maybe I can convince him into coming onto a podcast down the road. But you know, he's opposed to reservation systems. He he doesn't want to see uh, somebody deprived of their opportunity to visit the park. And he, you know, he says, "Well, Kurt, you know, what would you think if you could only visit the park once every ten years?" Obviously, I wouldn't like it. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, I live within a day's drive of Yellowstone, and so I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that I've been able to get up there usually at least once a year, if not more. Um, at the same time, I usually go into the backcountry, and so I would think if Yellowstone is going to come up with a re- reservation system or any of the big western landscape parks, if they go that route, that they're going to have a reservation system for the backcountry and one for the front country. And in fact, they already do that at Yellowstone because there's only so many backcountry reservations that they're going to hand out. So I kind of push back against Cam. Um, I think for the the benefit of the resource, we need to get move to a reservation system. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing with the reservation system, from a traveler's perspective, is it just goes a, kind of, it's so opposite from how we have envisioned national parks for the last you know, umpteen decades of our lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I go back to that whole concept. It was the way I was raised. You, it's like, oh, let's go camping in Mount Rainier National Park this weekend. So we throw the junk in the car and go. No reservations, not even for a campground. They, you know, they don't take them. And that was just part of the experience, the whole throw and go thing. I think we're, as travelers, we're going to have to adapt our mentality a little bit about how we approach all of this. No, it definitely it definitely strikes its spontaneity, um, cripples it to a certain degree. But I think, I think that could be a mindset because certainly there's some incredible national forests surrounding Yellowstone, surrounding Arches National Park, surrounding Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And so there are alternatives to going into that national park. And you can get the same benefit, frankly. One thing that is a concern, Rocky Mountains Reservation System is being handled through recreation.gov. We have had so many complaints about recreation.gov on the traveler. People swear that it is um, a racket, that um, certain people have figured out how to get around the system and and grab the, the bulk of the available reservations. So I've kind of figured out how I can make it work for my needs, but you know, other people obviously have concerns about it. And if we're going to move parks to recreation.gov to get your reservation, is there going to be a problem there? Right, right. And there, you know, has been, I've noticed the problems with getting backcountry permits via that and just the unwieldiness of trying to get on when everybody else is on. And sometimes you can't even get through to get your permit reservation in and things like that. So it's, yeah. it's, that's kind of tough. You know, interestingly, as uh, we're talking about park reopenings and, and reservation systems and giving natural resources a rest, out of Thailand came a proposal. Um, they they want to close their parks every year for two months to give wildlife a rest. And um, I read that. I just thought that was so interesting. But but here here's the, here's the question: How effective would it be? <laughs> that part I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a wildlife biologist, so I can't speak from that perspective. But um, I think the major difficulty would be: What time of year do you pick? You know, yeah. do you pick? 
<laughs> for the two months do you pick winter because no one's in the park anyway or do you put you know if you pick spring take Yellowstone because we were just talking about that pick spring okay let's take the two months in spring April May well May is huge for going to Yellowstone and watching baby wildlife mm-hmm. you know all the little red dog bison are born and the elk babies are out and it's just like you know <laughs> it's such a fun show <laughs> but um you know that's an experience that I don't know you want to deprive people of either because their bonding and their understanding of wildlife gets enhanced by seeing some of that. Yeah, but but April and, and May and into June, certainly in Yellowstone and Glacier and Grand Teton, is the season of renewal and not just with wildlife. I mean, you got all the vegetation coming back up and you think of some of these these parks and and. You've been in the campgrounds. You know how beaten into the dust some some of them are. Oh yes. <laughs> and and I don't know if two months is enough time to um, fully revegetate um, some some of those bare areas, but um, it, it couldn't hurt. I wouldn't think. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right about that. But there's the whole there's the whole American traveling public mindset. We don't want to be told where where to go and when to go, and yet you know. <laughs> The, the movie theater only has X seats. Um, restaurants take reservations they have for years. The hotel, when it's full, you have to go someplace else. So why not something similar for the park system? Right. It's just we've had a whole different thinking on the, the great outdoors. You know, that it's in our minds, it's, it's this unlimited wide open place where you have absolute freedom. And the reality is actually quite different from that. Yeah, there's a few more people out here. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I I have to, I think this whole coronavirus thing is giving us a different way of looking at things. And, you know, we think of hiking as one of those things that, you know, you can just go out and go. And I'm finding, I've been hiking quite a bit during the last month. And because I live in Montana and we do have some trails open and so forth. But it's interesting what we're having to think about on trails as you're hiking because, you know, you, you come head to head with somebody and it used to be you just walk by and, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to brush your shoulder, um, you know, things like that. Well, you're in pretty close proximity when you do pass people on trails now. And just yesterday, I was on one, I ran into an acquaintance I hadn't seen in quite some time. And we were standing socially distanced apart on the trail talking. And here comes some other people. So what do we have to do? We need to step off the trail to, you know, finish our little catch up with each other. And that kind of forced us because of, you know, we didn't want to trample these new flowers, just Mm -hmm. wildflowers blooming. So it forced us in close proximity onto these rocks. So there we're talking to each other too close then. So you, it's really interesting that the different phenomenon now that we have to think about in the great outdoors, it's uh, it, it definitely, there are some changes. You know, and, and one question that um, I know a, a lot of media have been asking, myself included, is, is the Park Service testing its own workers for coronavirus, for COVID-19? Mm-hmm. And Interior will not directly answer that question. 
And I don't know if it's in concern or not, but certainly we're all worried about spreading the disease and you could have asymptomatic carriers. And obviously with park personnel in these parks that are reopening, dealing with all the people who are coming in, it could be spreading. But um, have you heard anything in your conversations with your contacts in the park system as far as whether they're being tested, how they're being tested, what those tests are showing? No, I don't know about the testing. I do know, you know, I live here right outside of Glacier Park, and I knew to, do know for our park here, they're going to be operating at 60% of their staff. Mm-hmm. And that's because of COVID-19 rules for housing. They can't house the so many people per room and bathroom and all of that kind of stuff as they have in the past yeah. with seasonal workers. Yeah. So I think the, you know, there's a couple things of concern. One is we want to keep the park, sat, park staff healthy because if the park staff goes down, that park is closed. And so there goes our access to the park again. So I think it behooves all of us to help out in whatever way we can to keep it healthy, keep the staff healthy. And then also to, to realize that these smaller staffs at parks, they're not going to be able to run every program. They're not going to be able to have everything opened. You know, we're going to have some campgrounds that are going to be closed here all summer long because of that staffing issue. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think (laughs) it is a huge issue that is kind of pervading the whole work staff and visitor end of the park. We're talking today with Becky Lomax, the author of USA National Parks, a complete guide to all, um, I'm going to update the title, Becky, to all 62 parks. Yes. (laughs) We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. All right, we're talking today with Becky Lomax um, about uh, news across the national park system the past month. I'm sure, Becky, that we could go on and on and on talking about the reopening trials and tribulations and um, the reservation programs that some parks are embracing or or at least uh, testing um, as we go through the the coming months of uh, coronavirus. One thing that hasn't changed, it seems, are park visitors are park visitors. And by that, I mean... uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, there was an incident at Yellowstone just uh, two days after they reopened of a woman getting too close to a bison. Yep. 
Yes. <laughs> and and what was interesting? <laughs> what was interesting about that? I learned after the fact was two days prior to that, a visitor up at Theodore Roosevelt National Park got butted by a bison. Really, I didn't hear about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those bison. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that um, I think one of my favorite National Park Service social distancing signs that has come out has uh, it's a series of, you know, how far to stay away from wildlife, what Mm -hmm. social distancing means for wildlife. And it's just it's really fun. And the fourth one on it is a pack of bison chasing a person. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, they look like such docile creatures, and yet, boy, they're fast when they want to go, and they, they are big. They are. Yeah. When I've, I've, I've actually driven through Yellowstone, through a narrow canyon, we were in the canyon, and an entire herd of bison came up. So we were literally stuck. I've, I've had this happen a couple of times, stuck there while this herd of bison is migrating through the canyon. Mm-hmm. And here I am in my little CRV. <laughs> this bison literally six inches outside my window. And it is scary because, you know, the guy is bigger than my car. Yeah. So uh, they they are not something to be fiddled with. That's for sure. No, no, and their respect and their distance. Yeah, and and if you want to catch a selfie with one of them, and maybe maybe you need a zoom lens on your 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 cell phone. Um, exactly. Because <laughs> you know park regulations, I believe it's twenty five yards. You're supposed to stay away from bison. Is that right? It might be the seventy five yards. I think the bison are. You know, it's bears. You're right. 25 yards. It's 75 for um, bears and wolves. Yeah, if not 100. And I don't know if you, you heard the other day at Big Sky, and this is uh, outside of Yellowstone National Park, a mountain biker was coming down a trail, came around the corner, and what was waiting for him? The grizzly bear. Yeah. And uh, last I heard, he was in critical but stable condition. Yeah, yeah. And he's lucky because we, we lost a mountain biker here. I want to say about three years ago. Same situation. Yeah, yeah. Although, didn't that guy actually run into the bear? Yes. As opposed to come around the corner and there the bear was. Well, came um, around the corner and ran into the bear, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Staying in the, the wildlife news, um, unfortunately, on Memorial Day at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, park staff found a nesting loggerhead turtle that had been run over sometime. Yeah, so sometime sad. In- Sometime in the pre-dawn hours, um, somebody was out on a beach driving around when they shouldn't have been. Yeah. I guess somewhat amazingly, this is only the second time it's happened in the past decade. Um, back in June of 2010, actually, another nesting loggerhead turtle was run over by um, somebody in an ORV. And um, the rangers were able to, I believe, recover 92 eggs and rebury them and six of those um, hatch, so it wasn't uh, a total loss. And I know in this situation, they've also recovered the eggs, and I'm, I'm assuming have um, reburied them, and we'll keep an eye on them to see how many of those nest. Um, there has been a $2,500 reward offered for information um, leading to um, the arrest, and I'm presuming conviction of of whoever ran over this um, sea turtle. Yeah, that's so sad when stuff like that happens because it's like. The whole goal of the national parks is to protect 
the resources and protect wildlife. And we as visitors, I think, have that equal responsibility. Just because we don't wear ranger hats doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have a responsibility to protect that wildlife too. And I think we do. Yeah, yeah. Um, you move up the East Coast, you go to Cape Cod National Seashore in Massachusetts, and I don't know if you heard, but they put down a coyote the other day um, because the coyote was on one of the park beaches, and uh, I guess they've had a, an issue with coyotes um, getting kind of brazen um, this spring looking for handouts, and I guess at the uh, the one Herring Cove, I believe it is, or Herringbone um, Beach, people have gotten into the habit of leaving fish heads and, and even dog food for coyotes, and the coyotes have gotten used to that, and uh, the other day, I guess somebody was out there with uh, a puppy and didn't have the puppy on a leash, and the coyote killed the puppy. And so the rangers came out and killed the coyote. Oh, uh, that's sad all the way around. <laughs> it, it really is. And, and I think it's, it speaks to a couple things. One, obviously, um, don't feed wildlife. Um, yes. Two, keep keep your animals on leashes if you go into the parks and make sure you can only take that animal where you're supposed to take it. And and three, you know, with the parks closed, um, there hasn't been that much food for the wildlife to pick up. And so I wonder if they're getting a, a little bit bolder looking for that meal. It's possible, especially with some of those in the parks where they have animals that do are able to fend off some other things. You know, I look at some of our parks over here, like um, Glacier and Yellowstone and, and Tetons, Grand Teton. And those parks are, you know, the wildlife is super reliant on the natural resources in the park there. Mm -hmm. And usually if something happens, it's because uh, it's around the fringes of the park because of people not taking care of their garbage and things like that, putting out bird feeders and then bears get in bird feeders and things like that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting um, next next month, June. Um, I understand uh, Montana might be lifting its restrictions on out-of-state travelers, which means Yellowstone will be opening the west and the north entrances to the park. Um, and as you mentioned, park staffs are not up to um, 100% of staffing because they can't house all those safely. So it, it's going to be interesting to see a, how the crowds are coming to the park, and B, will the park have enough rangers to monitor those crowds and, and their behavior around wildlife as, as in addition to, you know, putting themselves in hazardous positions? Absolutely. And, you know, I think from a traveler perspective, too, not just in, in terms of what you're talking about with wildlife, but in terms of making your whole trip plan, I think... People of all years, this year you need to go with a plan B, C, and D in your back pocket. So if something happens, if something's closed, if trailheads are too packed, if there's too many people sitting in Lamar Valley at this one location watching wildlife, move on. Mm -hmm. Go to another location. Go to another place. So I think that needs to be, that needs to be kind of a different consciousness now that we need to think about our travel is being prepared. Oh, there's too many cars right here. I'm going to move on to the next place, even though there's a herd of bison right here to watch. Yeah, I know that's what they were recommending at Arches and Canyonlands National Park, which just opened this past Friday in Utah. 
let's let's move to Alaska for a minute. There was a interesting development up there that is concerning to uh, conservationists and environmentalists, and and I'm assuming um, to Park Service wildlife biologists who don't want to mention it publicly with their name attached to it. But the the Trump administration forced the Park Service to relax hunting regulations in the national preserves in Alaska. I read that. Yeah, yeah. Not I mean, real impressed with that one. <laughs> no, and this this goes back to um, um, Ryan Zinke, um, President Trump's first Interior Secretary. He's the one who brought up this idea that we should relax Park Service regulations for fishing and hunting down to, or up to, I guess, depending on the state. But let's let's keep them in 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 uh, lockstep with the, the state regulations. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I do have some thoughts on that. You know, if you compare the, the acreage of national parks to the acreage of national forests that it, that also have tons of hunting and so forth, it seems like we can afford as a country to have some designated places that don't have ramped up hunting rigs that basically don't allow it. And... I do know in the Alaska parks, there's some slightly different rules because of subsistence living. And that to, to me, that totally is a different case. But if you look at the rest of our parks in the lower 48 and so forth, I don't see a need for it because there are so many other opportunities of elsewhere that you can go hunting, even right next door to the national parks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, to me, it makes more sense just to. Let's let's have some places where that isn't a factor. Nice to think about that. What, one more topic, and, and we'll let it go for this week, but um, I'm not sure how things are up in uh, Montana, but I know um, the heat wave is on in the Southwest. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we saw high fire danger in parts of New Mexico prompt the Park Service to institute fire restrictions at Bandelier National Monument, Fort Union National Monument, Pecos National Historical Park, and Valles Caldera National Preserve, Grand Canyon National Park, just a couple days ago, instituted some um, fire restrictions in terms of campfires and barbecue fires and warming fires because things are so dry and the fire danger is so high. What, what do you see up in your end of the world? Well, considering we just got through with a big pile of rain, <laughs> you know, we're kind of still doing okay. And a large part of the Northern Rockies has pretty good snowpack this year. Well, that's good. Yeah. However, there's a really interesting phenomenon that has happened, um, particularly up in my area outside of Glacier, where the high country, the high mountains has above average snowpack, but the valleys are a little bit drier than usual. We got down in Flathead Valley, we had less snow than we usually do. Hmm. And so, you know, the potential for fires coming more out of the valley system, I think would be the issue. The lower elevation fires. Yeah. It would start from thunderstorms, that type of thing. But at this point, you know, we don't have anything. And for us up in this area, it totally depends on um, what the weather does in June and even early July. 
So, but we do saying that we do have our first 80 degree day is coming this weekend. So, yeah, yeah they're up, uh, I think, going over 100 degrees in Zion National Park um, and pushing 120 at Death Valley. Oh, that's too hot. Yeah. Low <laughs> <laughs> well, moisture is good. Yeah. Um, no, it's definitely going to be an interesting summer, um, let alone with uh, the restrictions that uh, coronavirus have dealt us. And uh, if it's another, bad year for forest fires um that doesn't bode well for national parks or national park travelers unfortunately no that's true very true we've been talking today with becky lomax the author of usa national parks uh, the complete guide to all 62 national parks um, published by moon becky thanks so much for sitting in today and, and chatting about uh, news across the national park system um, never a dull moment no it's not thank you so much Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. One of the most endangered species in the Western United States, if not the entire country, is the black-footed ferret. In fact, it was listed as an endangered species in 1967, six years before the Endangered Species Act was passed by Congress. For a while, it was thought that the black-footed ferret had actually gone extinct. And then in the early 1980s, a ranch dog in Matitsi, Wyoming came trotting home with a critter in its mouth and it was determined to be a black-footed ferret. Wildlife biologists were thrilled by this and headed out and found a small population of black-footed ferrets. Zoom forward to 2020, and there has been an active captive breeding program through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department that has led to some fairly good success with generating ferret populations to distribute in the western United States. A number of national parks have been used as places to build ferret populations, places like Wind Cave National Park and Badlands National Park in South Dakota. And of course, there are places on other public lands, national forest lands, such as the Thunder Basin National Grasslands in Wyoming, where ferrets could possibly gain a foothold if allowed. There's been some recent news, however, that could jeopardize that effort to give the ferrets a foot up at the Thunder Basin National Grasslands. To discuss that today, 
We're joined by Shami Anderson, Defender of Wildlife's Rockies and Plains Senior Representative. Thank you, Kurt. Happy to be here. So bring us up to date. What is the situation at Thunder Base and um, how long have ferrets been there and, and what's the, the current issue that is jeopardizing their position there? Well, actually, we are still working to even reintroduce ferrets to the Thunder Basin. Uh, it's been identified because it's a national grassland with such vast public lands as a key site for ferret recovery. But for many years, we've been trying to overcome what has become a, a rather intense social issue with the local ranchers, landowners in, in, the, in the region. And um, it's about prairie dogs. Ranchers tend to think prairie dogs eat all their grass for cattle and, and just assume poison them all, including even on our public lands where they uh, lease you know, grazing rights and, per- and have permits for that. So we've been trying to establish enough prairie dog acres and, and con- conserve acres for the reintroduction of the ferret and have yet to get past even the social issue with the ranchers. At Thunder Basin. Thunder Basin. Do you know uh, across the park system, I know, like I said, Wind Cave and Badlands National Parks um, have been used to to start populations. Are there other units of the national park system here in the West that um, they've returned ferrets to? Ferrets are being reintroduced on 30 sites in 16 states, and that includes federal lands as well as private lands. And there's only a, a couple national parks where they occur, including Wind Cave and Badlands National Park in South Dakota, which have really great viable populations because of the healthy prairie dog resource at those parks. Yeah, I wonder, do you know, are they looking at other national park units like uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park? I know they've got a fairly healthy prairie dog population. And of course, ferrets uh, thrive on prairie dogs. Yeah, they do. You know, a lot of it has to do in terms of reintroduction and, and, and site selection with the opportunity to also have animals occupy adjacent lands. And so if there's acceptance by, you know, local ranchers that uh, adjoin national park lands, then that is a, a potential site. But really, currently, what the Fish and Wildlife Service and the partners such as Defenders of Wildlife are trying to do is to maintain and build up the current sites, of which we have, as I mentioned, about 30 and 16 states. And we're not doing so well, to be quite honest. We have been sort of vacillating between 300 and 400 wild ferrets for the last several years and can't seem to get past that 400 mark of, of recruitment, you know, uh, pups born in the wild every year, mainly primarily because prairie dogs and a lot of these sites and on adjoining lands routinely get poisoned. So lethal control measures by, uh, by counties and, and even ranchers and, and even federal officials. And then they're also susceptible to salvatic plague. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can wipe out per, a, a prairie dog colony in a matter of days. And then ultimately, sh- shortly thereafter, we see black-footed ferrets quickly decline. And so a lot of our work involves prairie dog conservation, building up the habitat so those ferret populations can survive. Do you know uh, off the top of your head how many ferrets uh, Windcape and Badlands are hosting? Um, I could tell you, and I can pull that up on my spreadsheet right now, not off the top of my head. But in, in, in the wild, we have approximately 350. And, you know, like I said, we, you know, the goal is to increase those populations, individual sites. And that requires a lot of work with dusting for plague on the prairie dog colonies, uh, vaccinating ferrets as well as prairie dogs against plague. 
and you know really working collaboratively on on this recovery program for this endangered species that is in, in it has and continues to be in trouble yeah yeah uh, i'm just wondering are they still looking for for sites to um try and build ferret colonies? I mean, uh, looking at Theodore Roosevelt, not only does it have a very healthy prairie dog community, but it's it's surrounded by a national grasslands. The entire park is, I believe. And you would think that there's plenty of habitat out there. Yeah, no, there there are those considerations. And, new, you know, the, the idea is to, to identify and, and, you know, hopefully consider future sites for ferrets recovery on both federal and private lands. But like I said, right now, the, the big effort is to, with all the investments that have happened on the 30 existing sites, to continue to make sure that those populations are viable going forward. Now, one of the issues um, that has come up recently is um, coronavirus. Certainly across the country, we're concerned about the human health implications of that virus and what it can do to people. But uh, you say there's also a threat to ferrets? Yes, I mean, obviously, it goes without stating that COVID-19 and the worldwide pandemic has had some serious implications for human health. And our attempts to control the virus has seriously disrupted our normal way of life and and work. And on the work side, this includes the field work of of wildlife professionals such as myself. When it comes to ferrets, humans can transmit the disease to ferrets. I mean, it's it's a species of of the the mycelid family, which in domestic ferrets and minks has shown that they are susceptible to COVID-19 from humans, and mm-hmm. they can also shed the virus back to humans. And so you can imagine, I mean, every year we're working so hard to, to retain and even build up the current wild population. And so if, if we in any way introduce this virus to ferrets, it could have dire consequences for overall recovery of the species. And how could we introduce it? Is it just through the technicians handling the ferrets? Or, I mean, certainly um, visitors to national parks, I wouldn't think would be a vector, would they? Well, no, I mean, it, it, it's the same It's the same scenario as, as from human to human, you know, through as, as we speak, you know, and, and through our hand and contact, you know, any kind of um, the virus when it's airborne as we talk or handle the ferrets, it could be on our hands. I mean, so th- these are all precautions that we need to be aware of. And, and actually, we've had numerous meetings over the last several weeks to come up with best management practice for just what to do to avoid and to minimize any risk that, that for ferrets receiving this virus. Now, returning to Thunder Basin, um, you say they haven't actually returned ferrets there, but the size of the, the national grasslands there would, would make a, an optimum place for um, recovery efforts? Yeah, Fish and Wildlife Service has identified Thunder Basin as a, a, a key site uh, for particularly one criteria under the federal rebuilding plan for ferrets, and that is a, a, a national grassland that could uh, host at least 18 to 20,000 acres of prairie dogs, which would then mean we could have 100 breeding adults of ferrets. Now, we need 10 of those sites across the Great Plains in order to uh, delist and ultimately remove ferrets from the endangered species list. So without Thunder Basin, without managing for prairie dogs and for the ability to to reintroduce ferrets and, and then recover them on those national grasslands, blackfooted ferret could potentially go extinct. 
Wow. Now, 100 breeding pairs, is that in one location? I mean, with 30 sites in the, the, the West, and you mentioned there's 300 or 350 ferrets out there. Getting back to that 100 breeding pair criteria, is that in one location? Yeah, so that's in one location. And again, when you have intact grasslands, when you have public lands that have large expanses where prairie dogs can thrive. Now, prairie dogs are, are not just a species for ferrets. They're a keystone species for 100 different native animals of the, of the plains. But what they require is large acres for their burrows. And, and, and they clip the grass and they have colonies that have important social interactions that allow for other animals to also utilize that habitat. So when we're talking about prairie dogs, we're not just talking about the animal as a prey item, but the habitat that they create is so unique. It supports a whole host of other animals, including the black-footed ferret that utilizes its burrows. But again, the Thunder Basin, because it's a national grassland, public lands, we have the ability to have colonies all together that, that amount to 18 to 20,000 acres. And the density of those colonies is what allows for ferrets to thrive, as all the science has you know, indicated. And again, there's only, a, there's only so many of those sites left on our prairie grasslands where we can you know, conserve prairie dogs for, for this endangered species, the black-footed ferret. And, and so now there was a recent decision by the Forest Service to allow for the poisoning of prairie dog communities on the Thunder Basin? Yeah, I'll tell you, this has been rather unfortunate because Defenders of Wildlife, World Wildlife Fund, Humane Society of the United States, we've been the main NGOs at the table trying to strike a deal with the local ranchers and the Forest Service on maintaining enough prairie dog acres for ferrets to eventually be reintroduced. However, under the current administration, the Forest Service has elected to side with the one constituent group, which is agricultural interest, and allow for mass poisoning of prairie dogs and even shooting in the one area that we have dedicated to, to Blackfoot of ferret recovery. And honestly, Kurt, this area represents less than 10% of the Thunder Basin National Grassland, which is about 550,000 acres. So we're not asking for a lot for native species to have one section of the grassland where they can be left alone, that is not poisoned or shot at, and where they can thrive. And, and they even removed the ability for us to to reintroduce ferrets. I mean, they were removing the whole part of the plan that emphasized this area would be for black-footed ferret recovery. So the public is, you know, has we've engaged our, our members through Defenders of Wildlife for, for the past couple of years as we've been through this plan amendment process. The final decision just came down two weeks ago and it is soon to be signed, but we are objecting to it. We're gonna continue the fight because it's that important that we do what we can to keep Thunder Basin as a viable site for future ferret recovery. Yeah. Where on the, the grasslands are they proposing to do this? I mean, uh, up north On the Thunder Basin? There? Yeah. Well, it's, it's sort of right in the, in, this, in the central part of the Thunder Basin. It's, it's when we've done historic mapping of prairie dogs, this is sort of the spot that they like. Um, certainly prairie dogs occur in other areas of the grassland, but they tend to tend to be really dense right in the central portion of the Thunder Basin. But it also happens to be right where uh, some of the local ranchers also have grazing permits. So they can, you know, purchase permits, you know, they have these annual permits where they can graze their cattle on the, on the public lands. And really the bottom line for the ranchers is they see prairie dogs as a threat 
to their way of life. They see prairie dogs as eating the grass that they have determined is for their cattle. When in fact, and we've we've talked to them, you know, about this, that prairie dogs are, re, are an ecosystem engineer. You know, they clip the grass to a certain level; it grows back healthy and nutritious. And and there's actually the, a really important relationship with prairie dogs to to grass and forageability for cattle. And, and we believe the two can coexist, but the ranchers don't see it that way. They just assume poison all the prairie dogs and have these public lands totally open to their range, you know, cattle range practices. Yeah. Wow. Interesting story, Shami. I appreciate the update on that. And um, keep us in the loop if uh, you're successful in uh, reversing that decision. Yes. Thank you. We, we are working hard at it. I did want to let you know that there is an effort to look at Theodore Roosevelt as a potential site, but it has to it's really about the prairie dog inventory. You know, again, you, you might see prairie dogs all over the place. And the assumption is, well, there's plenty of prairie dogs. And, you know, it's about 6,500 acres of potential habitat. But a lot of it's spread out. We really need it to be in sort of dense colonies. So there sure. is consideration, however, for Thunder Base, or excuse me, for Theodore Roosevelt. Badlands, it's about 100 black-footed ferrets are at Badlands. 10,000 acres of prairie dogs. It's a model site for ferret recovery. I mean, it's just been, but but it, it took us 10 years to get there. I mean, we had to get, we went through plague and, you know, there was been a, a lot of effort to get to where we're at with successful fare recovery, including $200,000 a year in, in investments, particularly for plague mainly. And at Wind Cave, no, it was like a couple dozen at Wind Cave. That's all. Huh. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is. These, these numbers are not as, I mean, that Kanata, with the exception of Kanata at 100, a lot of these sites are like 5, 10, maybe 20, you know, all adding up to 350. But even then, I mean, it's, it's, it's been really challenging to build up their, their numbers. We've got about 300 in captive captivity. So this is at the Fish and Wildlife Service and Center in Fort Collins, as well as zoos. And those are the animals that we use to supplement the wild populations. And some of the wild populations are starting to have babies on their own. You know, we're starting to see recruitment happen, but not to the extent we'd like to see, you know, for real overall recovery. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking today with Shami Anderson, Defender of Wildlife's Rockies and Plains Senior Representative on the issue of prairie dogs and black-footed ferret recovery in the West. Shami, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're wondering whether your favorite national park is open, check our list of what's accessible in the national park system at nationalparkstraveler.org. We try to keep it as up-to-date as possible. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. 
Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.